welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at historical locations that are reportedly haunted. To understand the hauntings, one must first look at the history behind them, because history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together and learn some cool historical facts along the way. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and today I am doing a listener suggestion episode about San Francisco. This location was suggested to me by Alexander and I am so glad that he suggested it because I feel like San Francisco is a super haunted city that kind of flies under the radar for the most haunted city category. As I quickly discovered, I could not cover everything in this episode, but I did my best to pick out the most haunted spots in the city that I could, but there is so much more that I will have to do a part two sometime down the line, after the Halloween season, of course. Before I get started, I wanted to give a little update about what has been going on with me over the past few weeks. This episode got put on pause for a while because I have a very close relative in the hospital on a vent with COVID-19. I am not going to go into details here for the privacy of the person that I'm talking about, but basically my whole family has been in shock over the last couple of weeks and it's been really emotional and personally I've been kind of an emotional wreck. I've been struggling to focus long enough to do any research, let alone do recording, and when I'm filled with that much anxiety, my creativity mind seems to just go out the window and my ADHD kicks into overdrive. So that is really the real reason why it's been taking me so long to do this episode, besides the fact that it was a lot of research and you guys are going to find out how much research I put into this episode because every location has a ton of history behind it. So there's going to be a lot of history in this, but there's also a lot of really cool hauntings. So I am super excited to give you guys this episode. As always, I wanted to thank my amazing Patreons. You guys really do help keep this podcast going and I really appreciate it all from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, photos of historical places that I talk about on my main episodes, and you will get a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail. I use the money to pay for monthly fees for my podcast hosting fees, and I use the extra money to pay for music and sound effects that I use in every episode. A free way to help support the show is to leave me a review on the iTunes podcast app if you're using that one. Reviews help other people find the show when they are looking around for a new paranormal podcast to try. Okay, that's all I have for the updates today, other than I have four super spooky locations picked out to cover for Halloween. Halloween on this podcast will start in September, and I cannot wait to bring you those episodes. So now that all that's out of the way, let's get this episode started. After, of course, our monstrous moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and having encounters from beyond the stars. I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. Thank you. 
This episode's monstrous moment is going to be about fawns. Fawns are an ancient mythological creature that is described as a bipedal half-human and half-goat. The bottom of a fawn is two hairy goat legs with the upper torso of a man. They have pointed ears and their head is full of curly hair and they have horns. They have also been described as having a youthful sparkle in their eyes. Fawns come to us from the Greek culture and they have been associated with the Greek god named Pan. Pan was the god of shepherds, mountain wilds, meadowlands, and rustic music. Fawns loved to join Pan for his well-known parties. They would also act as his servants, and in return, Pan gifted them with his favorite musical instrument, the Pan flute. When the Romans took over, they changed his name to Faunus, but his purpose as a god basically stayed the same. Fawns are famous for their flute playing because when Pan gave them a flute, he also blessed them to play beautiful melodies. The Pan flute is a simple, small wooden flute, and when fawns play on these flutes, it can cause humans who hear the music to go into a trance-like state. Most of these creatures are kind, but some have been known to use these flutes for nefarious purposes. For the fawns who decided to use their power for evil, they have been known to lure men who are traveling alone. They lure them deep into the forest away from the path while they play their flute and then leave the humans to wander around lost for days and in some cases this would kill the traveler. They also like to lure young women away from their homes and made sure that they never return to their families. Luckily there are more nice fawns than there are mean ones and the kind ones like to invite lonely travelers to their parties in the woods. They would provide them with delicious food, let them rest up for the night, and they would even invite them to dance. The legend of the fawn is so well known that they have found their way into paintings, sculptures, literature, and even the movies. You might remember Mr. Tumnus from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The book's Chronicles of Narnia were written by C.S. Lewis, and he used a bunch of mythological creatures in his books. The movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was created by Disney in 2005. In that movie, it shows Mr. Tumnus hypnotizing Lucy into a trance that lulls her to sleep. Mr. Tumnus used the power of the flute to try to kidnap Lucy for the White Witch. Luckily for us, and for Lucy, Mr. Tumnus had such a good heart that he defies the witch and helps Lucy escape. I've always loved that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because I feel like it is a very accurate depiction of a fawn using the pan flute to, you know, hypnotize somebody, just like they talk about in mythology. Fawns are such an interesting creature in mythology, and while they're not always evil, and I would not technically call all of them a monster, I still wanted to cover them because I have always found them fascinating. never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, 1 in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. 
Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. San Francisco is a fun city to visit. You can catch a Giants game at one of the most beautiful baseball parks in the United States. You can eat some great seafood at Fisherman's Wharf, go shopping at Pier 39, get delicious chocolate from the Ghirardelli Chocolate Company at Ghirardelli Square, take a ferry boat ride out to the bay to look for whales, and so much more. And if you can't tell by my enthusiasm, I love San Francisco. I grew up only a couple hours away from San Francisco, and yes, while it was a hassle for me to get to the city, I have still gone to San Francisco a few times a year all my life. I have been to countless Giants games, I've gone to the California Academy of Sciences Museum, I've been to the Exploratorium both in its old location and its brand new one on the wharf, I have been to Alcatraz, and I've walked over the Golden Gate Bridge. But there is a lot in San Francisco that I still have not done. San Francisco is located about in the middle of the California coastline. It is on a peninsula that is in between the San Francisco Bay and the Pacific Ocean. It is basically a seven mile by seven mile square, which makes it a very compact city. The city was laid out in a grid pattern over about 40 steep hills. Some of these hills are as high as 1,000 feet. And today, San Francisco is such a modern city that it's easy to forget it is 245 years old, and the land has been lived on for thousands of years before the colonists from Spain ever got there. And because I always have such a fun time every time I go to the city, it's easy to forget that San Francisco has seen a lot of tragedy. Earthquakes, fires, systemic racism, epidemics, and assassinations have all happened within this city over its 245-year history. Not to mention that there are a lot of old, disturbed graveyards throughout the city. Many believe that these instances throughout history created the perfect breeding ground for ghosts and dark entities to wander freely in old buildings and down dark, foggy alleyways. Some think that San Francisco is one of the most haunted cities in the country. In fact, there were so many haunted places that I I could not fit them all into this episode, but I did my best to compile a good list of places to cover. If it's not the most haunted city, it definitely has the most unique hauntings I have ever heard of. But before I talk about these hauntings, it's time to get an overall view of the history of the area, and for that, we're going back to 3000 BC. people to live in the San Francisco Bay Area were the Ohlone people. This local Native American group dates back to 3000 BC. They lived well on the plentiful natural resources provided in the area. Europeans didn't discover San Francisco Bay until 1769 by an overland expedition led by Gaspar de Pertola and Father Juan Crespi. A few earlier explorers unknowingly sailed right past the entrance to the bay. These earlier explorers included Juan Cabrillo, Sir Francis Drake of England, 
Sebastian Sermeo, and Sebastian Vizcaino. In addition, there were a couple hundred voyages between Mexico and the Philippines during the early 1600s. So why did it take so long for these explorers to discover the entrance to the San Francisco Bay? Some reasons include fog and storms. If you've never been to San Francisco, it is a very foggy city, and sometimes you can't even see the bay from the shoreline. But also, the shape of land plays a part in this. The location of Alcatraz and Angel Island, when seen from a distance, make the coastline seem solid. The Berkeley Hills also add to this illusion. Wind currents also force ships to stay further away from land or else they could get blown onto the rocks. The Spanish began to get nervous about keeping control of Alta or Upper California, beginning in the mid-1700s when Russian fur traders were moving down from Alaska. The King of Spain sent orders in 1768 to settle Alta, California. One way the Spanish had begun settling the New World was with its missions. Father Junipero Serra led the founding of missions in Ulta, California. The first one was built in 1769. 21 missions were built, mostly along the coast from San Diego to the town of Sonoma. The first ship to enter the bay was the San Carlos in August of 1775. It anchored near Angel Island. Juan Batista de Anza came in 1776 with about 200 Spaniards to establish military and religious settlements for Spain. The Presidio of San Francisco was built, and they also built a mission called San Francisco de Assis. About 10,000 Ohlone were converted to the Spanish culture and Catholic religion. The mission became known as Mission Dolores, and the church still remains today. The Ohlone did not do well under the living conditions they were forced to endure under the Spanish rule. By 1841, there were only a few Ohlone at the mission, and by 1842, there were only eight left. The area was first named Yerba Buena, which means good herb, because there was a great amount of wild mint growing here. Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821, so San Francisco became part of Mexico. Englishman William Richardson came to the area and was granted permission to build the first settlement outside of Mission Dolores. Richardson and Mayor Francisco de Haro laid out plans for streets and the expansion of the settlement. After this, Americans began to take interest in San Francisco. A group of about 240 Mormon pioneers from the east coast of the United States sailed around the Great Horn Spoon to San Francisco Bay on July 31, 1846, on the ship the Brooklyn. The group was led by Sam Brannan. This caused the population in the town of San Francisco to double. The first mayor of the settlement changed its name to San Francisco on January 30, 1847. At the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848, San Francisco, along with the rest of Alta California, Arizona, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Utah, Nevada, Colorado, and Texas became part of the United States. The event that brought the biggest change to San Francisco was the discovery of gold in the Sierra Nevada mountain foothills in 1848. A Swiss immigrant by the name of John Sutter was given a land grant of 48,000 acres from the Mexican government in 1839. The land was located in the Sacramento Valley, and he used the land for agriculture. He named it New Helvetia, which translates to New Switzerland. This was the earliest non-Native American settlement in the Central Valley of California. He built a fort along the Sacramento River. If you're newer to my show and have not checked out my older episodes, I actually did a full episode on Old Town Sacramento, and I talked more in depth about the Sacramento area. So if you're interested in learning more of that type of history, it is number 14 on my episodes list. Around 1848, Sutter was having a sawmill built by his head carpenter, James Marshall, at Coloma on the nearby American River. 
River. Coloma is located more in the foothills of the Sierras. On January 24, 1848, Marshall saw several metallic flakes floating in the water channel. He was sure they were gold flakes. He went back to Sutter with hopes of keeping the discovery secret. So of course, everyone found out. The reason this didn't stay a secret for long was because other workers at the sawmill had friends who worked at the fort. Those friends told their friends, who told other friends, and the group of men were the first to reach the sawmill, which was about 40 miles away from the fort itself. They returned with some gold dust and soon almost everyone at the fort headed for the mill. Sam Brannon, who I mentioned earlier, had already set up a store outside of Sutter's Fort. When he heard the word gold, he quickly bought as much mining supplies as he could and filled his store shelves with the supplies. Then he filled a medicine bottle with gold flakes and went to the nearest town, San Francisco. He went up and down the streets shouting that gold had been discovered in the American River. And the very next day, San Francisco was said to be a ghost town by a journalist of the local newspaper. Sam Brannon became California's first millionaire in no time at all by selling his goods to the miners as they passed by Sutter's Fort on their way to the gold fields. The word of the California gold rush continued to spread. And by the summer of 1848, people were coming from Oregon and then the Sandwich Islands, which is Hawaii today. Then the word spread to Mexico, Peru, and Chile. San Francisco became the landing place for those coming by ship, earning the name the Golden Gate. President Polk announced to Congress in December of 1848 about the gold discovery, which was quickly reported in the newspapers in the United States and around the world. After this announcement, the population of San Francisco jumped from just under 1,000 to 25,000 by December of 1849. About 700 clipper ships carried thousands of 49ers from all parts of the world. Ships would either have to sail around Cape Horn of South America and then north to San Francisco. Another option would be to sail to Panama, travel by land, and then catch another ship to sail northward to San Francisco. The bay was filled with empty clipper ships because the crew would take off for the gold fields and leave their ships behind. These abandoned ships would change the landscape of San Francisco into what we know today. The deserted ships ended up being buried with landfill, and this increased the areas for buildings. San Francisco enlarged by about six blocks east of its original shoreline and four blocks north of what is today Fisherman's Wharf. The Transamerica building would be standing in water just off the shoreline if it had been built before the gold rush. Not all of these ships were buried. Some of the ships were turned into saloons, warehouses, hotels, jails, and even a church. Wood and other materials from the ships were used to construct buildings as well. There were so many men in the city that the wharf area became known as the Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast was pretty normal during the day with clothing shops, sailing-related businesses, and auction houses. But at night, it got pretty wild. Sailors and gold seekers could find saloons, brothels, gambling houses, and opium dens. Due to the lack of crew members, some ship captains would pay $75 per person to have men Shanghai. The kidnappers would get someone drunk and then put a drop of opium into a glass of whiskey and have them drink it. Then the man would pass out and be carried to the ship. He would wake up to find himself at sea on a two-year voyage. The population growth continued for San Francisco and the whole state of California as more miners came through San Francisco's port to reach the gold fields, hence the name the Golden Gate. By 1855, there were about 300,000 people in the state of California. San Francisco was the largest city west of the Mississippi River until Los Angeles became the largest in 1920. Many Chinese workers came to work in the gold mines. They also worked on the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. Chinatown became a very large district in the city 
It remains one of the largest in the United States. Several businesses started up in San Francisco, Levi Strauss & Company, Wells Fargo's Bank, and Ghirardelli Chocolate, just to name a few. Early San Francisco had a lot of crime and the government was pretty corrupt. It was very much just a large mining town with a lot of people passing through to the gold fields. For a while, San Francisco was a crazy place. They had these weird racist vigilante groups form up in the mid-1850s who took matters into their own hands. During their time, 12 people were lynched, hundreds of Irishmen and government members were kidnapped, and they forced many elected officials to resign. Later, their focus turned to the Chinese immigrants, which caused several race riots. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 limited the immigration of Chinese people. The Exclusion Act called for only males to immigrate to the United States and it reduced the numbers allowed into the city of San Francisco. And it was not repealed until 1943. San Francisco County was one of 18 counties created when California officially became a state in 1850. But due to all the vigilante activity in the 1850s, the state decided to divide the county. San Mateo County was created out of the southern portion of the original county. San Francisco became both a city and a county. Since the city had grown quickly in such a short amount of time, this created problems dealing with garbage and sewage, such as the case for many boom towns. Sewage and garbage would end up in the water where the cholera outbreaks began in the 1850s. By the late 1890s, a new sewer system was built to combat the cholera outbreaks. I would like to take some time now to tell you the history of the cable cars. Today, the cable car is the symbol of San Francisco and riding a cable car is on many people's bucket lists for people who come to visit the city. The San Francisco cable car system was invented by Andrew Smith Halliday. He came to San Francisco in 1852 during the gold rush. His father had a patent in Great Britain for a wire rope cable system. Halliday used this cable system in the mines to carry out ore. The cable system was also used to build suspension bridges. One day in 1869, Halliday saw horses being whipped as they struggled to pull a horse car on wet cobblestones of Jackson Street. After witnessing this, he came up with an idea of using a steam-powered engine and a cable-driven rail system. He was instrumental in forming the Clay Street Hill Railroad. Construction of Clay Street Cable Line started in May 1873. He tested the first cable car on August 2, 1873, at 4 o'clock in the morning. Public service started on September 1, 1873. Clay Street Hill Railroad was the only cable car company in the city for four years. Other companies started lines on other streets like Sutter, California, and Geary. Altogether, these companies built 53 miles of track from the Ferry Building to the Presidio to Golden Gate Park, the Castro District, and Mission District. These cable lines proved to be quite successful for a while, but the popularity did fall after the invention of cars. They were later saved from extinction and put on the National Historic Registry and remain popular to this day. With the city's rapid growth in the late 1800s, this created a new problem. More land was needed for development and cemeteries were in the way. The first official cemetery was at Mission Dolores where people were buried from 1782 until 1898. San Francisco had other large cemeteries in its city limits. Laurel Hill, Cavalry, the Independent Order of Oddfellows, the Masonic Cemetery, and Golden Gate Cemetery. These cemeteries were created in areas where people did not want to settle when they first got there. But as the city grew, homes were built all around the cemeteries and streetcars had to go around these areas to carry people to and from work. 
In the 1880s, people began demanding the cemeteries to be moved. Then, in 1900, a ship carried rats infected with bubonic plague into San Francisco. This caused a plague from 1900 to 1904. People incorrectly thought the plague was transmitted from dead bodies, so protests to remove the cemeteries picked up steam. In 1991, city leaders banned any new burials inside of the San Francisco city limits. Farmland south of the city was used to become the new site for new cemeteries. The city of Coloma is there today and it is now known as the city of the dead. But what to do with the existing cemeteries remained a topic for debate for several years. After the ban of burials inside the city, the graveyards began to deteriorate due to lack of funding. Valuable items were stolen, statues and gravestones were vandalized, and one claim was that people would use whole skeletons as Halloween decorations. Over the next several years, there were many battles between those who wanted to keep the original graves intact and those who wanted them to be relocated. By 1937, the city made the decision to remove all bodies to a new location. Moving the remains started in the 1920s and lasted throughout World War II. San Francisco remained an important port city even after the excitement of the gold rush died down. As agriculture developed in California, large amounts of the state's wheat was shipped from San Francisco to Europe. By the end of the 19th century, more cargo was moved through San Francisco than all of the other West Coast ports put together. The city's northwestern waterfront, the Embarcadero, needed to be improved. A massive seawall was constructed and started in 1878. It was completed 46 years later in 1924. The 12,000-foot-long wall added 800 acres to the city as well as 1,800 miles of docking space. Part of the construction included the ferry building at the center of the Embarcadero. It was built in 1898. This building with its famous clock tower is a city landmark. One of the biggest events to affect the city of San Francisco occurred April 18, 1906, known as the Great San Francisco Earthquake. As a California native, I'm used to earthquakes. I feel them all the time, and usually they're not that bad. They only last a couple seconds, and they're always under about a 4.0. On the flip side of that coin, I do know that if I start feeling an earthquake and I realize that the shaking is lasting longer than about five seconds and it starts to intensify, that's when I realize this is going to be bad. At 5.12 a.m., the city of San Francisco was awakened with a jolt, an earthquake centered offshore of the city. 270 miles of the San Andreas Fault ruptured at once. This quake came in waves. The first shaking was felt at 5.12, but it didn't last long. What people felt at 5.12 a.m. was called a foreshock. Earthquakes are unpredictable, and some are over quickly while others last way too long. 25 seconds later, the real quake began. During the Great San Francisco earthquake, the shaking lasted a whole minute, and the ground turned into large waves like an ocean, causing brick buildings to collapse, wood structures to break in half, roads to buckle, chimneys to fall, walls to cave in, large cracks formed in the ground, and water mains and gas pipes broke open all over the city. The quake was felt as far away as Oregon and all the way to LA and even Nevada. The USGS estimates that the magnitude of this quake was a 7.8 on the Richter scale, and the shaking didn't stop. Multiple aftershocks occurred, causing more unstable structures to collapse and rain brick and glass down on terrified San Franciscans. While all the shaking was going on, fires broke out and burned out of control for three days because there wasn't water available for the fire department. The fire destroyed 500 city blocks and about 80% of the city was destroyed, including most of the downtown center. The fire also destroyed almost all the books and records of the city. 
When the fire started, librarians scrambled to move as many books and records as possible to what they believed to be a safe location, but sadly, the fire ended up destroying the building that they had just moved all the books and records to. With the fire raging, people ran down to the water's edge where they were trapped, and the only option was to be evacuated across the bay. The U.S. military was stationed at the Presidio at this time, and they began helping citizens evacuate with boats, and the military set up refugee camps across the bay at Golden Gate Park and Ocean Beach. This quake was so big that aftershocks lasted for weeks. At first, the death toll was reported at 478, but this was an inaccurate count possibly due to concern over morale and losing support of rebuilding the city. In 2005, historians put the death toll at over 3,000 people. This is the highest death toll from a natural disaster in the history of California. The city quickly went back to rebuilding. The original street grid pattern was restored, but with wider streets. Also, a subway under Market Street was built. Fisherman's Wharf was rebuilt. Coit Tower was constructed on Telegraph Hill as a monument to the city. The neoclassical-style Civic Center, also known as City Hall, was also built during the Reconstruction period. To celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal in 1915, San Francisco hosted a World's Fair called the Panama Pacific International Exposition. City leaders wanted to show off the city and show the world that it had recovered from the earthquake. After the exposition, all the buildings were torn down except for the Palace of Fine Arts. It was one of 10 palaces at the center of the exposition. The palaces included exhibits from 29 states and 25 foreign countries. While I was doing my research for this, I looked up a lot of footage and photos of this uh, World's Fair, and I cannot believe the buildings that they just torn down. They were beautiful. I don't understand what it is with these World's Fairs, but this happened in Chicago as well. They built all these palaces just for the World's Fair, and they were beautiful, and then they just tore them all down. I just feel like that is such a waste. And I find it so interesting that they bothered to build all of these beautiful places just to know that they were going to be torn down a couple months after the fair concluded. During the 1930s, San Francisco saw much change. Two brand new bridges were built to better connect the cities of the Bay Area. Construction on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge started on July 9, 1933 and opened in the year of 1936. This allowed cars to travel from the city to the East Bay. At the entrance to the bay, another bridge was being built over the Golden Gate Strait, connecting San Francisco to Marin County. Because the bridge was being built over what is called the Golden Gate Strait, that's what gave the bridge its name, known as the Golden Gate Bridge. A lot of people who come to the city wonder why it's called the Golden Gate, because it is a big orange bridge. But it got its name from the strait, which is called the Golden Gate Strait, in the Golden Gate, which was the harbor. So it's funny because a lot of people don't know that. So that's why that bridge is called the Golden Gate Bridge. And a lot of people say that the color is red, but actually the color is technically called International Orange. Yeah, I know it looks kind of like a burnt red, but technically it's called International Orange and it wasn't the plan to keep it that color. There's a lot of theories and a lot of um, old myths about why it's orange, but the real reason is because they needed a primer quickly to coat all of the metal to keep it from weathering in the fog while they were building the bridge. And and it wasn't intended to be left that color, but what happened was they found out that it really stood out well in the fog. And the architect, Irving Moreau, really liked the color, so they ended up leaving it that color, and that's why it's still that color today. The bridge opened May 28, 1937, and was an engineering marvel. It was the longest bridge in the world at this time. And it was also
also a technological and architect achievement. Opening day was dubbed pedestrian day, so everyone could come see the bridge. 200,000 people walked on the bridge to enjoy the sights. So many people were on the bridge that the bridge actually sunk a few inches and became flat. The Golden Gate Bridge was built to have a natural arc to it. But that day, the weight of the pedestrians made the bridge completely flat. Alcatraz was switched from a military stockhold to a federal maximum security prison in August of 1934, earning its nickname The Rock. Alcatraz closed on March 21st, 1963, and it is now a popular museum. And I will also be covering Alcatraz for the October episode, so stay tuned for that. In the 1950s, Major League Baseball came to San Francisco. On May 28, 1957, National League owners voted to allow the New York Giants to move to the city of San Francisco and the Brooklyn Dodgers to move to LA. And since I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, I can confirm that the rivalry these two teams had followed them to the West Coast. However, baseball was already being played in San Francisco. The West Coast Negro Baseball League played for one season in 1946. San Francisco's team was the Sea Lions. The league had hoped to give African-American athletes a place to play professionally like in the other regions of the United States. However, the Brooklyn Dodgers manager Branch Ricky signed Jackie Robinson to play in the minor leagues, breaking the color barrier for Major League Baseball. The West Coast Negro League was over after only a few months. The San Francisco Giants honored the 75th anniversary of the team by wearing their jerseys on June 19, 2019. That date is now known as Juneteenth. They wore the jerseys again in 2021. The hippie generation began in the 60s. 1967 is known as the Summer of Love. Thousands of people gathered in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Bands from the city had a great influences on rock music. Two of these bands were Jefferson Airplane, later known as Jefferson Starship, and The Grateful Dead. San Francisco was also a very famous hotspot for movie making. Filmmakers began coming to the area to film projects starting in the 1930s. Many famous movies have been made here, such as Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, Mrs. Doubtfire, Herbie Rides Again, I Could Go On and On. The newer movies that have been made there are things like Marvel, like Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and Venom. And I think in any of those movies, you can always agree that San Francisco makes a perfect place for a car chase because of those famous hills. And TV shows have been filmed here as well, such as The Streets of San Francisco, which starred Michael Douglas, which I think is really funny because he starred in that way back in the 70s, and now he's in Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, and he's back in San Francisco filming those. So I love that. I think that is so fun. By the 1980s, the Bay Area was seeing a lot of growth. Computers were starting to influence the economy and the workforce. The middle class was doing well. Both baseball teams in the Bay Area were doing really good. By 1989, both the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's were in the World Series. There was a lot of positive energy in the air. Never before had these two teams met in a World Series matchup. Just about everyone in both cities was focused on the Battle of the Bay World Series game, and the Bay Area was lulled into a false sense of security. Because what could possibly go wrong? On October 17th, San Francisco was ready for its first ever World Series game, game number three at Candlestick Park against the Oakland A's. 
San Francisco had already lost its first two games, and the fans were focused on one thing, winning. Opening pitch was scheduled for 5.37 p.m. When ABC TV coverage started at 5 o'clock, everything was going as planned. Al Michaels and Tim McCarver started the pregame commentary by reviewing the last game. Then at 5.04 p.m., people watching the game around the country could tell that something was not right. The footage being played on the TV was a replay of a play from last night's game. The picture suddenly shook and went all fuzzy. At the same time, you could hear the roar of the excited crowd turn into screams of terror. And at the same time of the screams, you could hear the commentators say, I'll tell you what, we're having an earth... The screen went black, the sound went out, and then you could see nothing on the screen but the title card with the ABC logo and the World Series name on it. It took over 20 seconds of dead air and mixed white noise for only the sound to come back on. The pregame was interrupted by a large earthquake that knocked their live feed off the air. I did not do it justice. I highly recommend you guys go Google it. If no one has ever seen this footage before, it's quite creepy because keep in mind, this was way before cell phones and YouTube and live streaming, so when this happened, nobody had a clue what was going on outside of the stadium. And everyone watching this game at home, because remember, this is a World Series game. Everyone around the country is watching this game. So when they saw this, nobody had a clue what was going on. And it was really scary for people watching this game. The Loma Prieta earthquake caused significant damage to the city. A 50-foot section of the Bay Bridge collapsed. The upper level of the double-decker Nimitz Freeway collapsed on top of the lower level, crushing the cars and killing those underneath. The marina district was damaged, including collapsed buildings. The Candlestick Park Stadium, where everyone was at this time, had large cracks in its walls, and fires broke out in San Francisco and Oakland. Power was also knocked out in both cities. Because of these power outages, it took a long time for the local news stations to get back up and running. So for a couple of hours, the World Series broadcast was one of the few news sources available. They quickly switched gears from sports to news. They used their generator and a police generator to keep their system online. They relayed messages they received from a police officer's radio. Baseball not only became a source of news that day, but it also saved lives. The earthquake hit at rush hour, and normally the freeways and bridges would have been packed with commuters. Luckily, because of this big game, many people left work early to either head to Candlestick or head home to watch it on TV. This made the traffic a lot lighter than it ever would have been. The earthquake measured a 6.9 on the Richter scale, and it had several aftershocks for days. The shaking of the main quake lasted 8 to 15 seconds. Total damage of the quake was about $6 billion, and that would have been $12 billion today. 63 people were killed and 3,757 people were injured. The people of San Francisco and Oakland are resilient. Right after the quake happened, people ran out on the streets to help their fellow neighbor and risking their lives to help. People climbed into the collapsed freeway to help see if they could rescue anyone that might be trapped underneath. People went up to the Bay Bridge to see if they could help too. People also helped firefighters put out big fires on the streets. And just like people did in the 1906 earthquake, San Franciscans and Oaklanders went to rebuild immediately. Today, San Francisco is a modern city and a popular destination for tourists from around the world. And with all that tragedy, it's not hard to see why this city might be one of the most haunted in the United States.
now that I've given you guys an overall view of San Francisco and its history, let's move on to the haunted areas of the city. I hope that you guys are ready. This one's going to be a long episode. When I started this, I didn't think it was going to be this long, but now that I look at all of my notes, it's going to be a long one. But some of you guys have been asking me to do longer episodes, so I hope that you guys enjoy. Let's start off with Lincoln Park Golf Course. When this was suggested to me from Alexander, he first brought to my attention that there was a haunted Lincoln Park in San Francisco. Because I had done my Chicago Lincoln Park and Lincoln Park Zoo episode, he wanted me to cover some hauntings in San Francisco, and I immediately agreed. The Lincoln Park Golf Course in San Francisco has very much the same story as the Lincoln Park in Chicago. The park has beautiful views that overlook the city and the ocean. But before it became a park, it was called the Golden Gate Cemetery. As I talked about in my history portion, the city of San Francisco made a decision in 1937 to move all of the graveyards out of the city limits. And as always during these situations, the idea was to hurry up and do it as cheap as possible and use the new land for development. This led many grave markers and tombstones to be moved, but not always the bodies underneath. In the case of the Lincoln Park Golf Course, some tombstones and a crypt were even left behind. People who play on the golf course today pass by them every time they play the back nine. While the land was being set up for a park, the property also had a small three-hole golf course on the property that was made by some locals who were fans of the sport. As they began building the park, the golf course was allowed to stay, and they decided to make it an official 18-hole golf course. When the construction began on the golf course, thousands of corpses were removed from the green, but it looks like they left a good amount of the remains behind. Because today, when it rains hard, the ground gets really saturated, and bones find their way to the surface. Gardeners and landscapers have found many bones close to the surface while they were working on the property. Even people walking their dogs in the area have had their dogs hand them human bones. Some locals even think that the land is cursed and many golfers blame their bad games on the dead buried underneath. Workers and golfers alike have said to feel a strange feeling as though they are being watched while they work or play on empty fields. Players have reported feeling dizzy for no reason in the middle of play. Others have felt random cold spots or cold breezes pass by them on hot summer days. Some have even reported the feeling as if someone is tapping them on the shoulder and when they look around, there's no one there. Seeing someone walking past you in the corner of your eye to then turn and see that there's no one there is common. Another strange occurrence is golfers' balls seem to go missing at random. Golfers will strike a perfect ball, watch it land on the green, and then when they go where they watched it land, it is gone without a trace. If you look out on the bay on a foggy night when the moon is just right, you might see a sudden apparition of a three-mast ship. This ghost ship has been seen for many years, and there are a few legends attached to it. On a night in 1890, the Norwegian ship the Squando was docked off the Embarcadero. The captain of the ship was named Nels Eriksson, and he had just found out that his wife had been having an affair with his first mate, Lars Gunderson. Enraged, Eriksson convinced his wife to help him get revenge on Lars, Erickson's wife tricked Lars into drinking with her, and she got him incoherently drunk. When he was too drunk to put up much of a fight, she held his hands behind his back, while her husband Erickson chopped Lars' head off with an axe. After this, the couple tossed the headless corpse into the bay. There are other variations to this story. One has the captain cut the first mate's head off in front of his shocked and upset wife, and the other one has Erickson's wife not in an affair at all. 
This story goes the first mate was stalking her and would not leave her alone, leaving Erickson no choice but to kill him. Whatever the reason, the body was discovered the next day floating in the bay. Some accounts of the story have the police department finding the head in a bucket under the captain's bed, while some say the head was never found. The captain and his wife were also never seen again. Many people think they ran away after the murder for fear of being held accountable. Strangely enough, shortly after this incident, the next captain was killed in a mutiny, and then the next two captains were found mysteriously dead in their cabins. After this, people became convinced that the ship was cursed and haunted. This made it impossible for the owners of the ship to get a crew that would stay on her. The company docked her in San Francisco and hired two night watchmen to stand guard over the ship while they tried to figure out what to do. But the two men quit within the first night after running off the ship in terror, after they claimed to have a run-in with an apparition of a headless crew member roaming the halls near the captain's quarters. Now, if you look out at the bay at night when the fog is low over the water, you might be one of the many people to see the ship the Squando, still cutting through the water passing by the Embarcadero or even going out to sea under the Golden Gate Bridge. Some think that the ghosts of the former captains might be trying to go on one last voyage to prove that they are good captains. Others think that the ghost of the first mate is still steering the ghost ship looking for his head. Up next, we have the San Francisco Columbarium. A columbarium is a room or building that is used normally for public storage of urns that hold cremated remains of the deceased. The San Francisco Columbarium is located on the Old Oddfellow Cemetery property. The cemetery opened in 1854 and at its peak it stretched 167 acres. Before I talk more about the columbarium, I wanted to pause and talk about the Oddfellows. The Oddfellows is a secret society, kind of like the Freemasons. Unlike the Freemasons, the Oddfellows are newer to the game in the terms of secret societies. The Freemasons have been around since the 1400s and the Oddfellows began in the early 1700s. It started in England and its name the Oddfellows came from the group's different professions versus the Freemasons who were once all Masons or related to someone from that trade. The members of the Oddfellows did not belong to one single profession. The group began as a safe haven for Catholics because during the 1700s being a Catholic was looked down upon because the Church of England was the official church. The Oddfellows also wanted to give back through charity, but with any secret club, there were rumors of strange rituals. By the 1940s, some of the Oddfellow charitable work was no longer needed because of the government creating socialized health care and social services. Many old Oddfellows buildings that were built across the country in the UK and the United States were left empty and they were repurposed. When workers went into these buildings to remodel them, they made a shocking discovery. Human skeletons and coffins were in many of the old Oddfellows buildings. According to some reports, these skeletons were used as a sort of ritual where the new members had to kiss a skeleton to confront the idea of mortality. This was supposed to help the members want to become more charitable and help people before they die and become skeletons themselves. That is why it might not be such a coincidence that they were in charge of a lot of cemeteries, especially in the 18 and early 1900s. In fact, a few still exist today. If you see a cemetery that have the initials IOOF on the cemetery name, you will know that it is an Oddfellows Cemetery. IOOF stands for the International Order of Oddfellows. Now, while I don't think that they disturbed all the bodies buried in the cemeteries like many urban legends tell, I think it is possible that they did use some for ritual purposes, maybe even from former members who gave them permission to do so. Keep an eye out around your small towns and you might 
might find a sign of one of their meeting places. If you see IOOF in one of the back rooms of maybe a bar or even a small office off of Main Street, that might be a meeting place for the International Order of Oddfellows. Some of the Freemason symbols also have been found in little towns. I personally have seen a logo for that before in a small town not too far away from my town. So now that you know a little bit about the International Order of Oddfellows and the strangeness surrounding the club and its obsession with the use of skeletons, it might not surprise anyone to find out that this place is haunted. While the columbarium itself holds cremated remains of the deceased, let's not forget that the Oddfellows graveyard once surrounded the building. In 1910, the city outlawed cremations and they destroyed the crematorium. Only a few years after this, the city moved all the remaining cemeteries out of the city. And just like at Lincoln Park Golf Course, this was a rush job and some people think that a lot of bodies were left behind. The city also didn't know what to do with the columbarium because technically it was full of ashes, not bodies. So they decided to do nothing and the building fell into disrepair and was left to the elements for a long time. In 1934, the columbarium was almost demolished. Luckily, it was saved by receiving protection from the Homestead Act, but the building was left neglected for another 50 years. In the 1980s, the Neptune Society of Northern California bought the columbarium and they restored it to its former glory. It is now on the register of San Francisco's designated landmarks. It is a beautiful, huge, round building that stands three stories tall. Today, it is open to the public and holds the remains of over 8,000 people. The remains of many prominent San Francisco figures are here, and you can also find artifacts and tributes to victims of the AIDS epidemic. It is a beautiful building and they did a fantastic job of restoring it. I encourage all of you guys to go look it up on Google Images right now. Just type in San Francisco Columbarium and it should come up. And I'm also gonna post some pictures of it for my Patreons on my Patreon page. If you ever go inside the Columbarium, you can see damage from the 1906 earthquake and fire that reached inside the building. The Columbarium was one of the few buildings that survived the great 1906 earthquake. People who visit the Columbarium have reported the overwhelming sensation of being watched and followed as they walk between the rows of urn boxes. People have also reported hearing strange knocking sounds from behind locked doors and now sealed entryways. Strange and sometimes disturbing EVPs have been captured on accident or while conducting paranormal research. Also, high EMF spikes are common when there is no logical explanation. There are many spirits who wander around the building. Shadowy figures have been seen running around corners and floors above when the building is closed down for the night. People have also felt icy hands and fingertips running down their arms and playing with their hair. Some have even felt a cold hand grab their arm as if something is trying to get their attention and invisible hands tugging on their clothing. One woman reportedly had a white handprint show up on her shirt after she felt like she got grabbed while she was walking around the urns. It is said that at nighttime is when the spirits really come alive. The sound of disembodied voices, singing, footsteps, and screams have all been reported. Also, the spirit of a little girl has been seen playing and running down the hallways. She is wearing a turn-of-the-century dress, and many people think that she was a victim of the 1906 earthquake. When approached, she vanishes into a wisp of smoke. She has also been seen playing outside the building with other small children also wearing turn-of-the-century dress. Perhaps she plays with the children who were left behind when the cemetery got moved. Now it's time for San Francisco's most famous ghost story, the Stowe Lake Ghost. 
During the Victorian period, a young mother placed her baby in a pram and took her baby for a walk in the Golden Gate Park. While she was enjoying her walk, she saw a friend and they both stopped to sit on a park bench and talk for a while. After a few moments of chatting, the mother turned to check on her baby, only to find to her horror that the pram had vanished. Panic-stricken, she started screaming at the top of her voice for people to help her find her baby. She ran around the whole area searching for her pram, only to come to the horrifying conclusion that the pram must have rolled away from her down the hill and into the lake. Not listening to the park-goer's screams of protest, she plunged herself into the lake and never came back up. For the last 100 years, people who have visited Snow Lake on foggy nights have claimed to see a woman in white. She has been known to rise up from the water itself and ask you if you have seen her baby. She has also been known to frantically run up to you screaming for her child, begging you to help her find it, and then asking if you have seen her pram. When she is seen, she is always in a long white dress with long spindly blonde hair. She also has been said to have a glowing effect to her. There is another version to this story about the mother being out on a boat on the lake and her baby fell into the water, causing her to dive in after her baby and then they both never came back up. In that version of the story, her ghost still does the same thing. She's screaming for her baby near the water's edge and begging for you to help her find her baby. Whether this story is real or not, we will never know, but there is a good chance that it did happen because remember, during the 1906 earthquake, the fire burnt almost all the records of San Francisco. So either version of this story could have actually happened. The woman's ghost has been seen here for over a hundred years. And one ghost sighting became front page news in the San Francisco Chronicle. The front page article was from January 6, 1908. And the story said that a young man named Arthur was driving his automobile with some of his female friends past Snow Lake. Remember that there wasn't really driving regulations at this time, so people could kind of drive wherever they wanted. But the car was seen by mounted police driving really fast out of the park. When the police stopped the vehicle, the officer reported that the whole group was as white as a proverbial ghost. Some of the women were visibly upset and the driver, Arthur, looked terrified. When asked what had happened, Arthur told the officer that they had seen a, quote, thing appear out of nowhere in front of his car. Arthur said that it was a tall, thin figure with fine hair, barefoot and dressed in a bright white robe, and it had its arms stretched out as though trying to stop the car. The group also said that the figure seemed to emit its own light. The officer asked them if they had been drinking, to which they all said no immediately. Then the officer asked for the group to take him back to where he saw it, and the women inside the car shrieked and refused to go, visibly terrified at the thought. Arthur reluctantly did take the officers back to the spot, but the figure was gone. Ever since then, people have reportedly seen a woman crying out for her baby, heard her screaming into the night, and even felt random cold spots. Rumor has it that she likes to hang out near the Pioneer Woman statue. This statue is dedicated to the hardworking and fearless women who came to California in the beginning. Legend has it that this statue has also been known to move. Some have even seen the little children's statues next to her move as well. Also, the woman's head seems to move as if she is scanning the lake. Maybe she feels bad for the ghost of Stowe Lake and is trying to help the woman find her lost child.
The San Francisco Art Institute Bell Tower is said to be one of the more haunted areas in San Francisco. San Francisco has always been known for producing many artists. The city has its own uniqueness and artistic approach, so it won't surprise anyone to hear that San Francisco Art Institute is one of the oldest in the country. The school was founded in 1871, at the same time that the San Francisco Art Association was founded. This association was a small but influential group of artists, writers, and community leaders. They wanted to create an art school that would be attached to an art museum because art on the West Coast at this time was hard to come by. It was difficult to bring art to California since people had to travel to California either by wagon trains or by ship. Both of these options took months and a lot of people traveled really light, so they didn't bring a lot of art with them. Having an art school with the museum attached would help people in the West have a chance to try to make it as an artist when before it was not a possibility. The school grew over the next few decades and in 1926, the school had built a brand new building and a bell tower. The building was built in the Spanish colonial revival style that was popular during the 1920s. The doors officially opened in January of 1926 and ever since then, something never felt quite right about the bell tower. Just because this building is new does not mean that the ground it was built on was. Once again, this building was built next to and on top of, you guessed it, an old graveyard. The whole school has stories of some paranormal activity, but none are more famous than the activity inside the bell tower. Students passing under it would report a feeling of being watched as if someone was peering down on them from above. Some feel the creeps when looking at or just passing by the bell tower. In 1947, an art student named Bill was given permission to live in the bell tower while he attended school. He also doubled as the night watchman for the tower. At first, he thought this was a great deal, but on his first night there, he said the tower seemed to come alive. Now, I don't know exactly where this story came from, but I saw it quoted on many other sites, so I noted my sources all down below, so if you want to go find out more information, please go check out all my sources. But this is his story. While he was laying in bed, he heard heard the sound of many doors being opened and closed on the floors below him. Then he was quoted saying, I listened to the footsteps climbing to the first level, then to the second, and finally the third. The doorknob turned and the door to my room opened and closed as though someone had entered. I saw no one but heard footsteps passing through the roof, turning, then walking back to the door. The knob turned, the door opened and closed, and the footsteps continued to the observation platform. Ever since his encounter, people had no doubt that the bell tower is haunted. Other strange activities have been reported, like sounds of breathing, disembodied voices, screams, yells, cold spots, shadow figures, objects moving on their own, electronic equipment turning off and on and malfunctioning, and the report of a shadow figure that likes to look down onto the courtyard from the observation platform. In 1978, work renovations needed to be done to the tower and many workers quit the job site. They claimed that there was a dark energy inside the tower and many walked off the job after experiencing intense poltergeist activity. The renovations also had many freak near-fatal accidents that the workers blamed on the ghost of the tower. The activity got so intense that the school actually had to call in a team of psychics to try to cleanse the building. It didn't work too well and the ghosts inside the tower seemed to become more angry and even started smashing up furniture. A teacher remembered coming into a locked classroom to find a desk smashed and broken. Another time, a group of staff members remember turning off all of the lights before leaving, only to walk outside to look up and find that every single light had been turned back on again. The bell tower seemed to be at the center of the school's problems, so they ended up shutting it down for good and leaving whatever ghosts were inside to their own devices.
I have two more haunted locations to talk about, but before I move on, I wanted to say that I've been recording this over the course of about 11 days, and today, for whatever reason, the day I was going to finish this, my neighbors decided that today of all days was the best day to power wash their deck. So, if you hear a noise in the background, like a little bit of a motor sound, that is what that is. Sorry, I can't do anything about it. I have to finish this today so I can move on to the Halloween episodes. So if you hear the sound of a pressure washer, that's exactly what it is because I cannot control what my neighbors are doing. So I just wanted to let that be known. If you start hearing a weird noise, that's what it is. I've done everything I can to try to minimize the sound. But as they say in theater, the show must go on. So that's exactly what I'm doing. Our next haunted location is San Francisco City Hall. San Francisco City Hall has seen a lot of tragedy over its 100 years in operation, and the building is considered one of the most haunted in the city. Most government buildings shy away from rumors of being haunted, but not this one. San Francisco City Hall not only embraces its ghostly past, but it also holds a haunted tour during the month of October. My mind was blown when I found that out. I have done a lot of research on different style buildings, and city halls are not always known for being so open to talk about ghosts that are inside it, let alone allowing a ghost tour at night while it's closed. The original city hall took 20 27 years to build and was completed in 1899. It was open for only 27 years until the devastating 1906 earthquake and fire destroyed it. It took years to clean up and rebuild. The new city hall was actually moved two city blocks away from the old location and reopened in 1915. The building was built in the French Renaissance style and the dome is taller than the U.S. Capitol building by 42 feet. When they built the building in the new location, the ground it was built on was, you guessed it, an old graveyard. This one was called the Yerba Buena Cemetery. Many old caskets and remains were found during the excavation, and as always, the bodies didn't take too kindly to being moved and having a building built on top of them. The hauntings began not too long after the city hall opened. By the 1920s, workers began to experience strange paranormal activity. Every day at 12 o'clock p.m., people would hear random tapping on the walls. It was always five knocks with a pause and another five knocks would follow. These knocks were not just in one location because it has been reported throughout the building. Some people think it's the knocking of the bodies that are still buried underneath the building, letting the people above know that they are not happy that a building is sitting on top of them. The building might be known for its architecture and ghosts from the old cemetery, but it is also known for an upsetting and highly publicized double murder. On November 27, 1978, the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone, and San Francisco supervisor Harvey Milk were shot and killed by former supervisor Dan White. This was a shocking murder that stunned the public. Milk was mourned by the gay community because Milk was one of the first openly gay men to be elected to a public office. White was convicted of the lesser crime available at the time, which was voluntary manslaughter. This was a highly controversial verdict, and many people, especially in the LGBTQ community, felt angry that he was given the lesser sentence and this sparked the White Knight riots. White only served five of his seven-year sentence and he was let out for good behavior. And then less than two years after his release from prison, White committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. The murders marked a really sad day for the city of San Francisco, who were already mourning the loss of so many at the Jonestown Massacre. Many people feel that the shock and anger and sadness that happened at City Hall that day caused some dark energy to stick around inside the building. In fact, all three men's ghosts have been seen in the building on many occasions. 
People who walk in the building have claimed to hear Moscone and White arguing in the very room that White killed Moscone in. When workers go to open the door, they find the room empty. Other people have said to have seen Moscone and Milk walking around the building, almost as if they are still going to work, simply walking toward their offices only to disappear around the corner. Others have seen the three men running at each other down the hallway. When they get to each other, they vanish. There have also been reports of a phantom gunshot that has been heard by many workers. Once this has been heard, police are often called in to sweep the whole building, but they never find anything. Some think that this is a residual sound of one of the gunshots that killed either Moscone or Milk. Other strange things happen inside the building and have increased since the murders. Now strange orbs and shadow figures have been seen with the naked eye. Objects move on their own. Footsteps, disembodied voices, and even screams have been heard down the corridors. Doors like to close and lock on their own, and lights flicker and turn off at random. There are also reports of a shadow that changes shape and floats along the ceiling, and it changes into a new shape and then slides out of the room. That's really creepy to me. City Hall has an interesting and tragic past that all add to the hauntings here. And the people who work at the hall embrace these hauntings rather than shy away from them. The next time you are in San Francisco during October, take the ghost tour and see for yourself if you can spot a ghost inside City Hall. I left the best location for last, and that's the location of the old Sutro Baths. Today, this location might be nothing more than a ruin with a hole in the ground next to the ocean, but during the late 1800s, this location was the largest bathhouse in the world. Ever since its opening, the owner had nothing but financial problems with it. Some say that the land is cursed with dark energy, but it might actually have something to do with the museum that was filled with artifacts from around the world that brought dark energy to the land. But before we get into the creepy hauntings, let's get some backstory. What's left of the Sutro Baths is located at the Lands End area of the Outer Richmond District in western San Francisco. It was the project of Adolph Sutro, former mayor of San Francisco. Sutro was a self-made millionaire and his his dream was to bring recreation and education to San Francisco and develop along the oceanfront property. His first purchase was the original Cliff House in 1881. For those of you who don't know, the Cliff House is a famous restaurant that is on a cliff in San Francisco. It started as a restaurant and club for the wealthy who could afford the stagecoach trip to the seaside. After Sutro purchased the Cliff House, the original burnt down on Christmas Day in 1894. He rebuilt a new one and opened it in 1896. This time, it was an eight-story tall Victorian-style castle resort that had more entertainment options, with several private dining rooms, parlors, bars, restaurants, and a dancing hall. The building also offered panoramic views of the ocean. This amazing structure survived the 1906 earthquake, only to burn down the next year. It was rebuilt, but this time as a much smaller structure. And this is the building that is still used today. However, this restaurant is sadly closing this year, and they cited the pandemic as one of the reasons. After Sutro bought the Cliff House property, he wanted to expand along the oceanfront and turn it into a marine complex that would provide a getaway for people who lived in the city. He also believed in bringing culture from around the world for everyone to see and learn about. He developed the Sutro Baths in 1894. 
His goal was to provide a healthy recreational and inexpensive swimming facility for the people of San Francisco. This place was massive. It was the largest saltwater bathhouse in the world. It was designed in the classic Greek style and it had a huge glass enclosure that housed seven swimming pools and each pool was a different temperature. He also built water slides, trapeze, springboards, and a high dive. During high tide, the ocean could fill the pools with the 1.7 million gallons of water needed to fill all seven pools. The pools could accommodate 10,000 people, while the resort had 20,000 bathing suits and 40,000 towels for rent. So this place was massive. Please go look up pictures of this place. I will post them on my Patreon as well. The one thing that I noticed right away is that pools back then look nothing like they do today. You know how today you can walk into a pool and just hop right in it and pull yourself out? It wasn't like that back then. I don't know what the reasoning was for this during the 1800s, but the pool's sides were like you couldn't even reach them from inside the water. It was like you were in a tank. It was very bizarre. And uh, also renting a bathing suit sounds gross, <laughs> especially back then. Railroads were soon built to provide transportation so people could more easily afford the trip to this seaside getaway. This was meant to be an all-day experience, so the baths offered live entertainment like concerts, talent shows, and had plenty of different food options. The front entrance of the bathhouse held a natural history exhibit, galleries of paintings, sculptures, and tapestries. The exhibit also held artifacts from Mexico, China, Asia, and the Middle East, including mummified remains from Egypt. For all of its high-end talk and advertising, the bathhouse that Sutro had built never really was actually successful, and the bathhouse had a hard time gaining enough revenue to keep up with the daily cost of running the facility. Sutro suddenly passed away in 1898, leaving his family to run the property. Later, the bathhouse was crippled by the Great Depression, and the building continued to fall into disrepair, and eventually the family turned the baths into an ice skating rink. The ice skating rink didn't work out well either, and by 1964, they sold the land to the city and developers who wanted to build a high-rise apartment building and began to demolish the bathhouse structure. In 1966, what was left of the structure burnt down in a random fire and the city abandoned the plans to build the apartments. It has been a ruin ever since. A ruin that has sparked much lore and has terrifying paranormal activity. In fact, there are so many different ghosts and entities here that we need to start by looking at all the strange accidents that have happened at the property. Many locals have even been left wondering the question, could this land possibly be cursed? This area has had an interesting string of bad luck. On January 16, 1887, a two-mast schooner ship named the Parallel was illegally packed full of dangerous cargo, including 40 tons of dynamite powder. The ship got caught in giant swells and pushed it towards the shoreline near Land's End. The crew abandoned ship just in time but the ship crashed and then exploded. The shake from the blast was felt as far away as Sacramento. By morning, 80,000 people came to the shoreline to look at the damage, and the Cliff House let people in to buy drinks so they could look at the damage that the blast had caused to their building. Now that's an interesting marketing strategy. While no one died in the blast, the bad luck and the strange happening certainly started off with a bang. The Cliff House burnt down two different times, and the bathhouse struggled to make enough money to run the building. Then we have the museum that Sutro created. In his museum, he had relics from around the world. Some of these relics 
relics had magical significance. Whether Sutro knew this at the time or not is unclear, but by placing all of these relics on site, including mummified Egyptian remains, he created the perfect environment for spirits and dark entities to appear and possibly even trapping some souls to the land. Psychic mediums who have investigated these ruins have felt all kinds of strange energy from ghosts of victims from accidents from the bathhouse to ancient dark entities brought to the land from the artifacts at the museum. They said they felt the presence of an Irish banshee and a tukaloosh from South American folklore. A tukaloosh is a dwarf-like water spirit that feeds off of humans' fearful energy by causing harm to and scaring humans. According to folklore, they can turn invisible by swallowing a stone or drinking water. While they are invisible, they like to mess with and play devilish pranks on humans, and they might be one of the things that has been frightening people away from the Sutro baths. People who have visited the ruins have reported the feeling of being watched, followed, uncomfortable, anxious, and even feeling dizzy. Some have even become sick out of nowhere. There are many ghosts here, from residual energy to a ghost with a tragic death. One of the most famous ghosts in the area is the ghost of Natalie Harrison. Legend has it that during World War I, a woman named Natalie could not come to terms with her fiancé going off to fight in the war. She restlessly walked the shoreline every day for hours on end, waiting for him to come back on a transport ship. Sadly, he died in action and never came back home, and Natalie still returned to the shoreline every day until she died of a broken heart. Her ghost returns to the shoreline, still waiting for the ship to bring her loved one back home. She has been seen wandering the cliffs ever since 1917. A paranormal team even caught an EVP of a woman crying, and they believe that this was poor Natalie still brokenhearted. The shoreline has a lot of residual paranormal activity. Many people have seen the ghosts of three ladies in Victorian bathing suits walking along the beach with their parasols. They normally continue along the beach until they vanish into the mist. Other apparitions have been seen here during the day and night, like the apparition of a whole family having a picnic, men playing in the waves in old-fashioned bathing suits, and a man in a bowler hat has been seen walking along the beach, and an apparition of a young woman in Victorian dress. She has been seen standing near the water's edge. The murmur of disembodied beachgoers has also been reported, but when people go to see where the sound of the crowd is coming from, the sound suddenly stops and they find the beach completely empty. If you hang out long enough around the old footprint of the baths, you might see an apparition of people swimming and enjoying themselves as if the baths are still in operation. An apparition of another family has been seen in this location as well. This family all have bathing suits on, and they are often looking around as if they are trying to decide where to start their day of fun before they vanish. An apparition of a man diving into a now dilapidated tank has also been seen. When he hits what used to be the surface of the water, he vanishes. Also, the strange sound of echo like splashing and talking has been heard. Some people think that this is because the building used to have a glass dome around the pools, so they are hearing the sounds of the past as it would have sounded when the baths was in its heyday. The ghosts of children in 1800s and early 1900s dress have been seen and heard playing on the rocks along the pathways. Another ghost that has been seen by many eyewitnesses is the ghost of Frank Devon. Frank was 16 years old when he slipped from a ladder going up to one of the water slides. He fell 12 feet into an empty tank that was near the ladder and cracked his skull. This accident happened in 1896. 
And ever since then, his ghost has been seen near the pools. When people go to the ruins today, the ghost of Frank has been seen many times and in two different forms. One version of Frank that people have seen is him as a young, happy 16-year-old. He has even talked to people before vanishing in front of them. Frank has also been seen running around where the pools used to be. Another ghost sighting of Frank is really disturbing and sad. Some people have walked around the old baths area and seen Frank sitting on the ground, his skin pale and rotting. He is clutching his head that has a gaping hole in it. He is crying and screaming for help. He has even been known to lunge out at passersby and grabbing him by their ankles, begging you for help. He vanishes as soon as he gets people's attention. Another common occurrence is people feeling like their clothes are being tugged on by unseen hands. There are tunnels that run underneath the old bathhouse. These tunnels were once used to pump salt water into the tanks once a day. Now these tunnels are said to be super haunted. From urban legends of a woman in white to these tunnels being used for satanic rituals, they have it all. One of these urban legends is quite unique. It is said that if you walk into one of the tunnels near the ocean and light a candle, a woman in white will appear out of nowhere leap at you, grab the candle from you, and then throw it into the water, and then she will vanish. Some wonder if this spirit is trying to prevent another fire from happening, since the cliff house has burned down twice, and then another fire destroyed the rest of the bathhouse. Another legend says that the tunnels have a dark energy or demon living in it. This supposed demon is thought to have been brought to the land by a satanic cult using the tunnels for rituals. Others say that it is there from the artifacts that came to the museum and never left. Strange sounds, smells, apparitions and bad feelings have all been reported near the tunnels. Shadow figures have been seen darting to and from the tunnels along with the sounds of disembodied screams, moaning, and footsteps. Claw marks have supposedly been found in the sand and scratch marks along the walls of the tunnels. People investigating these tunnels have heard something large moving around in the dark. Growling sounds have been heard and the smell of rotting flesh and sulfur along with people finding piles of flesh and bone have been found. I don't know if the Sutro Baths have a demon lurking in the tunnels, but I have read enough strange encounters to know that there is something strange going on on this property. And for whatever reason, this land seems to create a perfect energy for all kinds of weird paranormal activity. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode about the history and hauntings found in San Francisco. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Thank you all so much for your patience. I know that it took me a long time to make this episode, but I wanted to get it right because I know a lot of history of San Francisco and I think that was my problem. I kept having to erase things and go back to the drawing board several times to get this episode right because every time I finished writing a script, it was way too long because you guys know how hard it is for me to read aloud and everything like that. But this ended up being a very long episode so some of you guys have been asking for that, so I hope that you guys liked a long episode. It looks like this one's shaping up to be 1 hour and 15-ish minutes. Um, and I know that for some people that's not even that long because I've seen plenty of other podcasters go for hours, but that's, I really can't do that very well. So anyway, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, before you leave, please make sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Historically Haunted. Last week, I actually posted an Instagram story giving you guys a sneak peek of my 
next Halloween episode. Halloween is starting very soon. I'm already working on the next four episodes that I am making for the Halloween season. I cannot wait. I am so happy that we are in spooky season. And thank you guys all so much for listening. I hope that everyone is doing okay after Hurricane Ida. I saw the horrible flooding that happened uh, back there. And I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm thinking of all of you and you were all in my prayers. I hope that you guys are staying safe and healthy because we are also still in a pandemic, which is awful. But I think that we will all get through this and hopefully come out stronger than ever before after all said and done. Again, thank you all so much for your support. Oh, if you're interested in my Patreon page, I had some people asking me. I have a link down below in the show notes so you can find it very easy. If you click on the link, it'll take you right to my page and you can decide if being a Patreon supporter is right for you. All right, everyone. Thank you guys so much. I will see you guys back here real soon on another episode of Historically Haunted. Bye, everybody.